Hello and welcome to the In Squash Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. We're here for episode 266, and it's a very special one. The legendary Paul Asiante, the man who led Trinity College out of Hartford, Connecticut in the USA to 17 national collegiate squash titles and the famous streak of 252 consecutive wins, inclusive within that of 13 straight national titles. Well, he just stepped down from his head coaching duties after 30 years there. And uh, we take an incredible look back at that time from the very beginning of his coaching career all the way up to the end of this season, uh, which, which uh, as it turned out, was a fitting send-off for Paul. Uh, we'll get into all of that on the pod today. But first, let's talk about our sponsor, though, Open Squash, the New York-based nonprofit dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable for everyone. They've brought on board several like-minded PSA pros like former world number one and British Open champion, recent British Open champion, Ali Faragam. What a British Open. He had played incredible squash there. He's a open squash guy as well as Victor Quinn, Gina Kennedy, Nathan Lake, who had a great showing against Diego in the uh, British as well. They are all open squash uh, sponsored players. Well, this summer at Open Squash, you can level up your game with all-star college coaches. And from June 17th to the 20th, Mike Way will be providing sessions, AM and PM sessions, four-hour sessions. Mike has been coaching the world's top players for 20 years, including Jonathan Power, former world number one, of course, uh, Graham Riding, uh, former Canadian national champion and world number 10, Amanda Sobey, who's been playing some incredible squash these days, and current... Uh, and the current uh, British Open champion and former world number one, Ali Farag. In addition, under his leadership, Harvard has won 23 team and individual championships in the last nine seasons. Mike's attention to detail and understanding of the finer points of the game are legendary, as are his generosity and dedication, not just to squash, but to his players' well-being and personnel uh, Personal development, not personnel development, personal development. Uh, for more information about Mike Way's summer sessions at Open Squash, check it all out at www.opensquash.org. And there's so much more uh, going on there on uh, at Open Squash that you can check out as well. But now what I want you to check out is this episode uh, with the legendary Paul Asciante, episode 266. Hi, Jerry. Paul, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, apologies for the. Uh, no, the no, don't. There. I'm getting old. No. Yeah, no, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I was just looking back, uh, Paul, at the. Uh, I started the podcast several years back now. It seems like yesterday. But uh, yeah, you were on uh, four years ago and then three oh, wow. years ago. And then uh, I haven't had you on since. So uh, my bad there. It should be. Should be at least an annual thing. You, you no, know. I think you've gotten much more interesting people than me. No, no, not at all. I mean, uh, uh, and anyways, thanks so much for for agreeing to to do it again. It's, uh, I think, the occasion is obviously uh, appropriate. But uh, I mean, you've had some tremendous uh, seasons uh, since we last uh, met. But just uh, just in terms of uh, everything, you know, before we get started, just want to congratulate you 
on, uh, you know, absolutely amazing 30 years at Trinity and the years prior to that where you got into uh, squash coaching. I think it was at um, one of the military academies. Yeah, yeah, I was at West Point. You know, it's um, thank you for that. Um, I've received a lot more than I've given over the years. And uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm stepping down as head coach, but I'm not leaving the college hmm. and I'm just going from the engine to the caboose. So, uh <laughs> it, it isn't too yeah. traumatic for me. Yeah. So how, I mean, now that the dust has settled uh, in some way, uh, I guess slightly, how does it feel now that, you, you know, you know you're stepping away from squash after all? I mean, you hear you have all the great coaches in, in the game that, that leave the game. Uh, I guess, I mean, you've been in it so long that it's probably you you knew it was the right time. It, it's not like yeah. a premature decision. Yeah, I knew at the beginning of the year that this was going to be it. And um, but I didn't want to do, you know, the farewell tour rose petals at every match. I just did. It, this is about yeah. the boys. It isn't about me. Yeah. And so I knew and we were very lucky because um, one of our former players, Mustafa Hamada, mm. uh, came back to Trinity after being an assistant at Princeton for four years. And he bet on himself to come back. We're in the process of a search right now. But to have shared this past year with him was extraordinary. And and it just felt like we were keeping it in the family. And it was really, it was so wonderful. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll talk about this season uh, because it was an incredible uh, way to end it. I mean, in many ways uh, for you. But, uh, you know, as you just mentioned, uh, you're not leaving the game entirely, no. not leaving, you know, you're not, you know, uh, off into the sunset, as they say. With, with no, the no, I'm going from this chair to the chair over there. <laughs> oh, okay. So what, what does that what's that role entail? Um, well, I'm going to be an ambassador for the college. I'm gonna be involved in some advancement work, some admissions work, um, doing really anything that they feel can be additive um, to the college. You know, I I still have a lot left to give, but this is a young man's game the game of coaching and we need a younger butt in this chair and the boys deserve that and it's funny you know they they're so respectful and so kind and but even in their darkest moments or maybe one beer in even yeah. they would admit it's time to to get a younger person in here so it it definitely is the right time i'm happy that we're going to make this transition while the program is still healthy and strong. I wouldn't want to leave the cupboards bare for the next person. That would be terrible. So, you know, and this is, this is our family and I want to keep the family healthy and whole. Yeah. Well, we'll get into, uh, I mean, this season, obviously it was, it was a great ending to, to the season in many ways. And, uh, and like you said, you want to pass the baton on uh, in the right way. So we'll, we'll talk about that if you don't mind a little bit later, but there's so many uh, places we could jump off uh, from, and I'm sure you, you've done a few of these podcasts uh, over the last little while, but I, I'd like to start uh, sort of by looking back several, several years. Uh, I think you were an aspirant uh, Olympic gymnast back in the day. Yeah, I was, and, I was a um, gymnast. And at that at that point, uh, I mean, you you suffered a, a, a terrible back injury, uh, and yeah. it, it took you out of out of that sport. And, and uh, lucky for us, it brought you to our sport, uh, the sport of squash. How did uh, sort of how did what was that? What's the story behind the backstory there? 
Well, you know, in a way, it was my my relationship with gymnastics was not a healthy one. It was an ex- obsessive. Um, I was going to be, you know, this great gymnast, but really, I wasn't as talented as some of the really good ones, and yet I was. I didn't have a life. All I was doing was gymnastics seven days a week, and and I probably would have muddled along there. because it's it was what I did but more importantly it was who I was which was really bad Mm. and then I got hurt so really there was not much choice and so I was still at West Point and I figured I better pick up a new activity because I can still coach this sport but I can't do it anymore and um, so I picked up a tennis racket for the first time and but I started playing tennis like I was doing gymnastics, which was seven hours a day, seven days a week. I got pretty good at tennis pretty fast because tennis is a lot easier than gymnastics. <laughs> and I had very good body awareness and, you know, that sort of thing. So I started playing tennis and I was really passionate about it while still coaching the assistant coaching the gymnastics team. And at that time, the tennis coach at West Point, Ron Holmberg, resigned. Now, Ron Holmberg was the real deal. You know, he had beaten Rod Laver at Junior Wimbledon. I mean, he was world class. And so, like an idiot, I applied for that job. And I had no right getting that job. They offered the job to every other applicant, all of whom turned it down. And so, I was the last man standing because they, these people didn't want to have to run with cadets at six in the morning and right. do PT Reveille. And I was like, I'll do anything. And mm-hmm. so they made me the head tennis coach in the interim. And they took me down to the second floor of Arvin Gymnasium. And they said, this is a squash court. I didn't know that was in the building. And you're now the head squash coach. Wow. So that, that came with the job, did it? Right. Tennis and, squash. Okay. and so I... So went to the first squash practice and I didn't know what the lines meant, what that metal was on the front wall. And I watched the cadets practice and I said to them, guys, I don't know what you're doing. I have no idea what you're doing, but it looks like conditioning is a premium in this activity. So we're going to make a deal. I'm going to make sure you're the most fit team in the country, which was not hard to do. Yeah. And you're going to teach me this game of squash rackets. And that's how my squash coaching career began at, at, at West Point. Wow. And I, I stayed there 11 years. Um, it was such an interesting time. And, uh, and that was my entree into squash. I kept coaching both tennis and squash almost all of my career. Put down the tennis maybe five years ago here. Um, the U.S. squash coaching was taking up a lot of time. And we and I just wanted to be able to focus on that side of it. So, yeah, my my journey is certainly not linear. And uh, certainly, uh, as as I said to someone recently, my career has been based on the uh, imposter syndrome. You know, everywhere I've been, I didn't belong. And that what do you you say about that? I mean, there's obviously something to it because you've had a tremendous success. People have, uh, you know, this with the the imposter syndrome have this the thinking yeah. that, that you know it's yeah. the wrong yeah. way of approaching it but you you learned from the ground up and probably in, in what you the way you 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 learned the game of squash was sort of a, 
a great way to approach it with, with the key. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always been the case that I wanted to prove something to whoever hired me or to myself or whatever, but there are many different motivators toward quote-unquote success, and mine was this feeling that I didn't belong and I was going to prove them wrong. Now, there's nothing admirable about that. You know, that's an obsession and... And other people in my life suffered because of that journey. And that's why we wrote this book, Run to the Roar, with Jim Zug. It was mostly as an apology to my three grown children. <laughs> and so, you know, it's it's interesting. And 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 now that I get ready to move on, it's interesting what I, you know, I've thought a lot about what will I miss the most and what will I not miss the most. What I will miss the most is practice. Practice is so cool, you know, and, and it's not hard to get someone motivated on match day. If anything, on match day, you've got to kind of ramp it down a little bit. But it, most people don't come to practice truly engaged, completely and motivated. And the successful people, leaders, motivate people to give the most every day. Because what you can do on a Saturday is really determined by what you can do on Wednesday when nobody's watching. And But for 20-year-old kids, 19-year-old kids, they don't recognize that. So that's that constant daily struggle and pushing and cajoling. And so I'm, I'm going to miss that. Um, what I won't miss is I have a little bit of the disease to please. And I like people to like me, which is also not a very healthy way to go through life and with social media and with the ramped up intensity of winning i find the drama in engaging with my other coaches and parents i don't like it it's not i don't like having a coach angry with at me the next day after a match because one of my players maybe didn't behave the way that person thought they should. And that wasn't what I signed up for. And it's hard. Yeah, that's, um, the, that's social media now, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah, it's brutal. That. Yeah. It's, and everything is instantly out there. Always being taken out of context. Um, but it's there. Well, how did you approach yeah. that? I mean, I know personally, uh, recent, recently uh, with my little podcast here i've had i get people here and there you know they you get a lot of positive comments but then you get some some people who who don't like what you do and no question the hardest thing for me was just to leave it yeah i think that's well you know my father used to say to me if you live for their praise then you also have to listen to their criticism Mm. it's best just to go down the middle and listen to your own voice um, but that's hard. That's not that's not anything I've been very good at. You know, it's uh, the, we did a book. All of a sudden, now there's a higher level of visibility. A lot of people didn't like the book. A lot of people were asking, "Why did you do that? Um, why did you talk about your son's heroin addiction?" And and it it was you know, I I look forward to going underground and just yeah. sort of you know. <laughs> drowning worms on a pond periodically or going for a walk around the reservoir and, and not worrying about that stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, 
I guess it comes with the territory. I mean, you you had such a successful career, and you you knew you know that, right? You know yeah. what yeah, what know came it. with with all of that. But I mean, you spent uh, you know thirty years uh, as the head coach at, at Trinity, and then the years before that, and you sort of what we talked about there, how you got into coaching at at uh, West Point, brings me to to my next question, sort of. Uh, at that point, up until you know, through through the years, you probably evolved as a coach. Uh, how would you say that evolution, uh, the various stages of that, uh, from the begin, from the nascent, uh, not even knowing what, what the lines were, up until you yeah. know, you're leading the, the the U.S. national men's team to a sixth place finish at the the World Team Championships. Right? Yeah. And having the honor of so when I coached at the Pan American in Pan American Games in Winnipeg, mm. we were there and um, Canada was just crushing us, and we never heard the national anthem played once. And this this past go around in Lima, Peru, we heard it five times out of the seven. Yeah, so it, it was pretty heady stuff to be around athletes doing that stuff. The evolution of a coach, me as a coach was more about perspective. And what I mean by that is, as a young coach, I was too ego-attached. And I don't know at what point in the journey that changed. It probably didn't change black and white. It probably gradually changed. But it was about me. And it was about telling my dad, hey, we want another something. And he'd say, well, what's next? What's next? And it was a very predatory kind of a, couldn't get enough newspaper articles or whatever. And then it's somewhere along the way I realized this is not this is nothing about me. Mm. You know, in practice when nobody's watching, the loudest voice should be the coach. And on game day, the nobody should even know just that the coach is in there. And it took a while, but that was how I changed as a coach. I don't think I've, you know, my knowledge of skill set or motivation or any of that changed. It just, it stopped being about me. When people ask me now, when I, companies, and they ask me what's the most important quality that a leader can have, I really believe it is empathy. You have to be able to put yourself on the other side of the desk. You cannot help people if you don't know where they're coming from. And the only way you can know where they're coming from is by putting yourself down. It's it just not, it can't be about you. I was on the phone recently with a friend who happened to live in the same town with a um, former assistant tennis coach of mine at West Point. And he said, hey, I, I, I have a friend down here and he was your assistant at West Point. And I had a visceral reaction to that. My stomach clenched. And I said, oof, oh, please, please, please tell him he would probably like me more today. I'm a nicer person. Yeah. And so that's how I've changed as a coach. I just. Like maybe, what would be without, you know, without going into too much detail, yeah. like what for any co aspirant coaches out there or anyone sort of new to the coaching game, like what would be some, like an example where you felt you made, you made a looking back, made a misstep or. In reference to what I, you're the, the at. kids were very simple. I view the players there for me and the program. Mm -hmm. Now I'm there for the players. It's not about me at all. Um, we're here in the service of the young. 
And, and so it was interesting when I coached world team tennis and I coached that for 10 years and that was super fun. And, you know, we had James Blake on the team and Monica Salas wow. and I called Billie Jean King. We had just drafted Monica Salas, who at the time was four in the world. And I called Billie Jean and I said, what the hell am I going to tell Monica Salas? <laughs> She's forgotten more tennis than I'm ever going to know. And she said, the most important thing to remember is no matter what level these people are, they still seek your approval. And secondly, never pretend to be something you're not. So coaching world team tennis, you know, I would go up to the players and I would say, I, I noticed something. Would you like me to share my observation or not? And if they and on occasion, they'd say no, fine. It wasn't about me or I'd say yes. And, you know, and that and so. That was the evolution or the change of um, and when you see young coaches and or if you're looking, one of the barometers that I use is you'll be talking to a coach of some activity and I'll say, so, you know, when when do you, when is the match on Saturday? And they'll very often say, oh, I play it, too. And <laughs> that's immediately a red flag. Oh, are you playing it, too? No, no, we're playing it, too. Yeah, yeah. they are playing it, too. And so that was kind of a very small example of how things changed along the way for me. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I I can see how how that that could happen, especially if you're young and you know you take your. It's not fault of your own. It's evolution, mm. right? You take yourself yep. seriously. You take you know it's yeah, a big opportunity for any new coach. And there are a lot of young coaches in the college game right now. Uh, great coaches. Yeah, great. great coaches. I mean, look at, look. I mean, Gilly Lane, you know, he's not really young anymore, but man, that guy is an, an extraordinary coach. And then, you know, you look at people like Joey Rejo at Tufts. Yeah. I mean, what he's doing is incredible. And it, and it goes around the horn, you know, there, our game right now has some real, real masterful coaches out there and they love their kids. That though that that's clear to me, and their kids love them. Yeah, and that's that's you know that's good. Not yeah, a young man, but sort of new to the college game is Thierry Linku. Look at that. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. No, exactly. And yet, when you're around Thierry, there's no ego, none. Guy, <laughs> you just how does that happen? He's amazing. Yeah, of the guy. I mean, I've had Thierry on, Dave Palmer, uh, oh. Gilly. I've spoken to him. They're all super, super yeah. nice, down to earth. Earth, guys. Um, now, just moving on uh, in 19, uh, this the sort of kind of connected to what we're talking about a little bit. In 1996, uh, I read a great piece by uh, the, the, the the great writer Rob Dinnerman. Uh, he writes for, <laughs> for, for Daily Squash Report and he writes, he's done a fair bit of uh, college squash writing over the years. But he's great. Uh, uh, in his piece, uh, he, he mentioned that you had a meeting with the Trinity College president. Uh, Evan, I think Dobell, if I'm mm -hmm. maybe mis uh, yeah. Evan Dobell. Yeah, and talking about, uh, or you brought up sort of the college recruitment, and at that time, uh, maybe laid the groundwork for what we have now, this international landscape that's out there, yeah. college squash. If you don't mind, like sort of, uh, what do you remember about that meeting and and how things played out uh, there? Well, Evan, Evan was and is a brilliant man and a, and a visionary. And, you know, he called me into his office and literally this meeting lasted two minutes and it did change things dramatically. He said, coach, you you 
you guys play the Ivies. You don't beat the Ivies, but you play the Ivies. And I want to be able to walk into boardrooms and sort of flex our muscles a little bit. And so how do we get better? And I said, well, President Tobel, the best squash in the world is not being played in the United States, which was much more the case then. Now we're pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, we got four women in the top 16 in the world. That's not bad. But um, and he said, great. He just cut me off. And he said, go out and find the best and the brightest. We're not going to compromise academically. We're not going to give away more financial aid than we're allowed to do. But I want you to go out and find these kids. You're dismissed. And I was as I was walking to the door, he said, coach. And I looked back and he said, don't screw it up. And so it was time. And uh, so we started talking to some really bright um, players and we started getting some of the really talented kids. You know, we got Marcus Cowie, who was, you know, two-time British Open runner-up, amazing player. His mother was the English national coach. And we started opening our eyes to the differences. Of course, when this started happening, there was a knee-jerk reaction because at that point, squash in the United States at the college level was sort of a private country club kind of a world. And, you know, how dare you, you know, open the doors to other people from other communities and, oh, you must surely be cheating. If Trinity can come up and be, you know, name an Ivy, then you got to be cheating. There's no, these kids must be illiterate. They must be, you know, you must be giving out illegal scholarships. And that was, that was kind of the reaction to that. And, um, and now today they're doing it. Yeah. And, and they're doing it better than we can. And, uh, you know, I look at what Mike Way and Gilly have done and now, Mark Allen at UVA and John White at Drexel, Sean Wilkinson at Princeton. These are, you know, these are schools where the we used to get the best juniors in the in their respective countries. Now they're bringing in some of the best future pros. Yeah. When you look at the pro ranks, I mean, it, Ali Farag, Yusuf Ibrahim, Victor Kroon. You know, Elainen uh, uh, from Penn. Gina you know, Kennedy. Oh, my gosh. Amanda. Yeah. Amanda, Sabrina. I mean, it's college squash today is you can go to the round of 16 at the intercollegiate singles and it's a PSA event. I yeah. mean, it's as good as it gets. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, Yusuf Ibrahim, before the intercollegiate championships went and played the windy city open and beat paul cole yeah think about that i mean that would be like one of my guys going out and beating federer or you know in tennis it, and then the, the, the amazing thing about that is he came back and then he lost to victor cruin it, it's insane <laughs> it's insane it was so it was amazing i couldn't believe it <laughs> yeah it's so good yeah so good now these guys are in the college ranks. I mean, the the top players from college, they typically they hit the ground running. I mean, Hannah yeah. Montez is another one. I, I saw her play yeah. the other day. Really impressed with with her. She just needs to. She'll she'll find her. You know, she's going to be successful as well. 
Well, what happened in what happened in, in when I we first started recruiting these young people, they were clearly good enough, talented enough to be on track to possibly playing pro squash. But they had made a conscious decision that they wanted to get an education. So they were getting off the track. Yeah. Whereas now they're coming to play high level college squash to prepare them to go on tour. And that's a very different world. Yeah. And, and, and hats off to the, the coaches and the institutions that had the wisdom and vision to do that. Yeah, that's a huge, uh, that's, the, that's the biggest difference I see as well. I mean, back yeah. 10 years ago, you know, you, you would forego pro squash to get a, a great exactly. education player squash, but mm -hmm. now you get the best of both worlds. Um, no doubt about it. You know, I, I helped some, some Division One tennis programs, and those young people, if they do go to college, they turn pro. They go pro after a year or two. There was a boy that played at UNC, um, Rinky, who was from Australia, and he played at UNC, and then he said, I'm going to turn pro. I'm with the do you think it's the right time? Well, the kid just won the Australian Open in doubles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he bet on himself, and it worked out just fine. Yeah, we haven't seen uh, much of that in the squash. Or no, because there's not enough money. Yeah. Yeah, that that's the carrot, isn't it? I mean, you you play a couple of years, you you say, okay, well, there there there's a couple of million dollars uh, out there oh, for yeah, me right yeah, now. Yeah. So <laughs> you lose in the, you lose in the second round of the U.S. Open in tennis, and you make more than the winner winner of the biggest event in Chicago. Yeah, losing in the second round. Yeah, yeah. That that's I'll never the, forget when I was uh, I was playing in a qualifying event in Bermuda, and Rod Martin was coming in to play. He was the top seed. No, it was actually Brett Martin. And so we all went out to the airport to pick him up in a taxi. And Brett gets off the plane and he's he's super excited. And he says, guess who was just on the plane? And we said, who? He said, Pete Sampras. And I looked at him and I thought, your ranking in the world is higher than Pete Sampras's. And yet you are in awe of Pete Sampras. Yeah, it's the money. It's the money and the television. Yeah, absolutely. I was just wondering, uh, Paul, do you think, uh, I mean, with with that recruiting, the, the changes in recruiting, the international changes, uh, that obviously led to the this influx of, of tremendous new coaches that, that we have. It, 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 there's a connection there? I, I do. I think many more of the coaches, the international coaches, came over to be teaching pros in the country, you know, the American dream. And uh, and also one of the things that happened that I had not anticipated, because I'm not very bright, but the boys that came here to play, many of them stayed on to be teaching pros. And then those boys ended up having an impact on U.S. squash. Yeah. So it was like a, a full circle. It was pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. I mean, U.S. squad. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, uh, we'll talk about. I mean, your your role in, in U.S. squash. But uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, about something you've probably been asked uh, ad nauseum uh, over the years: uh, the streak, uh, 13, 13 straight national titles, two hundred and fifty-two consecutive wins. Uh, it's the longest uh, intercollegiate 
uh, streak in uh, intercollegiate sports uh, history, if I'm not mistaken. So the, it definitely begs the question. I mean, you've probably been asked several different questions at, uh, on this topic, but uh, just wondering at that time, how were you able to keep you know, knowing your your philosophy behind coaching and you know being well grounded and uh, down to earth? How's that possible uh, under those circumstances? Uh, well, or how did you make it possible? Because obviously you you would have wanted. Well, the streak the streak is like watching a scoreboard. That's for someone else to keep track. I've never seen a squash player on the court running around with a scoreboard clicker. And the streak, it, that's not what I came into this to do. That wasn't my idea, and it wasn't. That's the that's an institutional win because they were supporting us to be successful. And so this, and I honestly believe this, I'm not being silly and humble. Most of my coaching colleagues out there could have done the same. If the, if the institution is supporting you and you've got the horses and you've got the fastest horses in the race, you're usually going to win the race. Yeah. Um, what I didn't realize was what, burden that was on the players shoulders and and that always caught me by surprise one day i was driving with reggie shamborn from Bloemfontein, south africa and he was in the car and he looked at me and he said coach i have to ask you a question i said sure he said what's going to happen when the streak ends and i could see the fear in his eyes and it hadn't occurred to me yeah. and i said well when the streak ends you know Rivers are going to run red. The frogs are going to fall out of the skies. And the world as we know it is going to change. I said, nothing is going to happen when the street ends. We'll start over. It's fine. And um, so it was, you know, it, it, it definitely was a thing. It just wasn't my thing. Yeah. When it did end, uh, how, what, what, what was the sort of reaction? How, how did well, we lost? Play out? Yeah, we lost at Yale and the explosion of the spectators at Yale was so phenomenal. I mean, it was an appropriate celebration. And we were on one of the side courts meeting with the team. And I said to the guys, listen to that. That's not one year. They're celebrating 13 years. They deserve every bit of this. And now we're going to start over. You're going to hold your head up. You're going to walk out of this building. You're going to walk up to your opponent. And you're going to shake his hand and you're going to say, well done. And then we're going to leave. And tomorrow we'll get ready. And so it was in a way a relief. They were gutted, but it yeah. was fine. That was good. At some point it had to happen, right? So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that was an amazing uh, historical uh, moment for you, though, I would imagine. Now, also over the years, you, you've had um, – four intercollegiate individual uh, champions as well. Uh, you mentioned uh, Marcus Cowie, uh, Bernardo Samper, who, uh, you know, he may have laid the groundwork for what we have right now, current world number one from South America. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he was there before Miguel Rodriguez was. Uh, yeah, he, he was well. good. He was so talented and so playful and such mm -hmm. a happy guy, you know, and he won his, his freshman year. And then Yasser El Halabi arrived on the scene, and things changed pretty dramatically. Yeah, yeah. But Bernardo was great, and we still are in touch, and he's a love. And then we had Basit, Basit Chowdhury, Chowdhury yeah. from Pakistan. 
and that was the gentle giant. And um, he, he, I was actually talking to him yesterday. He's in Lahore, Pakistan. He's married. He's got a little baby. Um, and he was really well coached. He was about six, five. Whoa. Wow. And the people that coached him realized that when you're that big, the last thing you want to do is open up the court. You don't want to make it a sprinting game. Mm. And so he could glue the ball to the sidewall. And a jancher in him? He, he kind of that. And then all of a sudden, when a loose ball would appear, he could hit a thunderous low cross court that you just couldn't get around him. You couldn't get to the ball. So he was really well coached. And um, and then this year, we had the surprise of surprises. And yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Wow, How about that? that was so cool to see to see him do that. I mean, the week before at the intercollegiate team championships, uh, Tarak just beat him so badly, and and Sharaf was in the tin the whole match. Mm-hmm. And a couple of the alums said, "You need to let him know that that's the lower boundary, and the object of the game is to hit it above that tin." <laughs> and you know, and uh, but then he showed up a week later and was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. He won. Well, he won the intercollegiate and then he also won his, uh, his match against Harvard, I believe in, in the final, the Potter cup final, which was, uh, no, he lost that match. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. Tarak beat him three. Oh, um, okay. so he got, he, but, Tarek got his revenge there. Yeah. yeah. And then a week later at the singles, he, uh, he won the tournament. Oh, so the, oh, okay. So the Potter, so the team is first, the, and the then the individual. Okay, wow. Right. So yeah, that was a huge surprise, and uh, yeah, it was great. Surprise, he was, yeah. He was in the zone. Yeah. Now, uh, before we we move on, uh, I mean, just uh, just in terms of a send off, I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better send off than that, could you? For I mean, to the way the season ended, you guys. Uh, didn't uh, you had a seventeen and five record? I think uh, having lost uh, some of the big names quite convincingly, they beat you. Yeah, oh yeah, you, you got to the final. All of the tough so. matches, all of the tough matches were on the road, right. and so all year long, what I kept saying to the boys was, "We're invincible at home. You have to believe that, because the national championships were the Potter Cup was here." So we're unbeatable at home, unbeatable at home. And I kept banging that over their head. I didn't believe that. <laughs> and I'm not sure they believe that. <laughs> but it was super. I felt like we could perform well here. Mm. And um, so the first match was against Princeton and my friend Sean Wilkinson. And the boys. So that was the number. That was the number three versus the number six match maybe we were six and we played really well um the boys were highly motivated and and i think we caught princeton a little bit so we came through that match and then the next day was the match against penn Mm. and i have you know again gilly is one of my favorite men in the world and he he had them ready but I knew that we were going to be a lot, especially here. And then tragically, it turned out that their number three player, who was the last one on, had a, a pretty bad knee injury. 
okay. Yeah, and then it was hard to watch because he was he was groaning on the court. You could hear him going into the corners, and it was tough. Yes. But again, we sort of, you know, we emptied the tanks, and we somehow got through that match. And now it's the finals against Harvard. Mm. And I honestly did not think we were going to be able to answer the bell on Sunday because we had put in so much work to get to there. The first flight goes on and we're up 2-0 match points to go up 3-0. And the place is rocking. And they stole that match. They did a great job. They didn't panic. Mike Way is an amazing coach. And little by little, the thing kind of turned and lots of ups and downs. I think all in, we may have had six match balls that day mm. and Harvard won. And Mike came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, you chased us all over that place for three and a half hours. And he said, and all I could think about was that son of a gun has figured it out again. <laughs> and uh, but they they hung. They were just too, too strong at the end. Um, and I don't think my proudest moments as a coach have all been in defeat. And, um, this one was far and away my most proud moment. And, um, you know, the boys were like, we didn't make it. We fell short. We had match balls. We should be getting sized for national championship rings. No, it was so phenomenal. Well, there was probably a lot of, you know, a lot of the, I mean, those guys were probably devastated because they, oh, they were wanted it for they you. Were. They they wanted it for you. Well, no, I, 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 I guess they did, but I hope not. It just, it was there and they didn't know that I was stepping down. Oh, okay. That But it was yeah, yeah. so cool to see that mm. and, and, and to see the intensity of the competition and, you know, it was it was really kind of fun. Absolutely, yeah. It sound. I mean, the the way you just told that, I've got uh, goosebumps here. It was fantastic, uh, yeah. a, a great final, and then then the, the individuals uh, to follow. Yeah. That up. Um, mm. Now there was another uh, a, a few years uh, prior. Um, one of the more impressive accomplishments, uh, and and this comes from I think from Rob's story. Uh, I'd like you to flesh it out a bit uh was in the 2013 season uh, where you guys won the won the national championship without a single uh first team all-american selection yeah, team. we were really deep that year and uh our number nine player could really play with our number one player mm. and uh and that and and that's when the other schools were starting to really get some rock stars not to say that our top guys weren't really good, but that's when, that's when the 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 freaks started arriving, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, so it was that kind of a thing, and uh, we were just really deep, and uh, in the old days we always thought we would win on depth anyway, we felt like we would always win seven, eight, and nine. Of course, those days are gone, <laughs> but. <laughs> It was because, you know, the number nine man wins as many points as the number one man. It is interesting, though, the, the psychology of it. The number one player is the head of the snake. It leads the team to where it's going. And if you win a match 8-1 and your number nine player loses, it feels great. 
if you win a match 8-1 and your number one player loses, it feels very different. Mm. So Why is that? Know, Why do you think? It's just you because your top guy lost. Yeah. It's uh, is I guess it's a pride thing or whatever, but it it's always been very interesting. Mm. He's sort of like the de facto go to. Yeah. Go-to yeah. Guy, you know you're. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, let's move if you don't mind, Paul. Let's move on to uh, you know, your time spent with the the U.S. national team as well. Uh, so. The evolution of U.S. squash is that, de- I mean, we we talked about it a little bit, but uh, as a junior in Canada in the late 80s and early 90s, I mean, we always, it was always Canada, yeah. U.S. squash and Canada. There's a big separation. Right. And now it's been reversed. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. Reversed. No, it definitely has. Um, you know, it's been interesting to watch. Um, I will say that being, quote unquote, the U.S. national coach, was a bit of a misnomer. Um, I was a part-time coach, and to be a really good coach, you need to have a different language with every player on the team. And that takes time, and it takes trust. You know, trust is a meal served with a teaspoon. It takes time. And so I would come together with the players for a couple of weeks a year And then we'd go off to the world championships or the Pan American games or whatever it was. And I always, again, felt like a bit of an imposter there. And I am deeply appreciative, first of all, to Kevin Klipstein for letting me do this. And and before him, um, you know, the, uh, the U.S. squash CEOs before him. But I'm very appreciative to the players who tolerated me. And who treated me with respect, you know, Richard Chin, you know, or, yeah. or, you know, uh, Demer Holleran. They had their own coaches. They had people that they were working with every day. Amanda, Olivia Klein, uh, you know, these these people, Todd Harity, they didn't have to be as nice to me as they were. and And they were. And I for, will forever appreciate that because I wasn't th- completely in. And then our friend David Gannett came in and made a huge gift to endow the national coaching position. And then Ned Edwards and U.S. Squash embarked on this mon- monstrous fundraising initiative and just built the most beautiful squash center in the world. And now the national coach, the full-time national coach, Ang Beng, he is there. And that's really made a big difference. Um, Now our, our women have their own coaches as well. So they work collaborating together, but on the men's side, I'm seeing while we're not quite there yet, we are seeing improvement. And then when you look at the, the junior tournaments, you know, there's, hundreds and hundreds of kids coming together every weekend to play these tournaments. And the future is really bright. And to me, we have to create more college teams. Um, Cause with the numbers just burgeoning like that, we need to give them homes. If you know, that's if Williams is going to take three this year and Tufts is going, where do they go? I mean, there's so many great juniors 
And so we have to create more college teams. I really believe that. And we can. There's so many institutions in this country that have squash courts right now and no teams. Right. And if you have courts, it's not an expensive proposition. And so that's something that I hope in my next chapter I might be able to help a little bit. But I think that's important. I was, uh, I did speak with Olivia just recently and uh, she recalls days when, when the players were, I mean, and Olivia was like the, the golden child way back. She sure. was a jun jun tremendous junior. Now she's playing her best squash. Yes. Ever. But uh, uh, she was talking about when players were more or less sort of back in the early days, more or less left to their own devices in terms no of, in terms of support. But now, she just can't believe the the support that she's getting. Yeah. Everything yeah. is taken care of. So do you do, were you privy or were you around during the sort of that? Oh yeah, no, I was definitely, we, Rich Wade came over and Rich was overseeing that program. And then we together, well, mostly Rich were presenting to us squash, uh, an EAP program where we would be funding people who were playing full time. And, um, it's it it's the right initiative it's the right program and i i think it it's going to continue and i think we're going to start to become a bit of a a go-to kind of a program in other countries oh definitely and that, i mean you know, see germany just got you know simon rossner running the show and yeah. that's real stuff Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the, the World Team Championships, though, in 2011. Uh, the men, uh, I think it was Gilly, uh, uh, Chris Gordon, Julian Illingsworth, and Todd Harity. I mean, those right. guys are synonymous with the uh, U.S. men's squash. Uh, totally. Back, back then, 2011, they finished sixth, the highest ever uh, yep. uh, finish, and you were uh, you were there as, as yep. coach yep. for that. Talk about uh, that that team, uh, the collection of players there. I mean, just fantastic uh, level, fantastic guys. Oh, amazing guys, right? Julian beat Saurav Gosal when we played India in the team. Yeah. It was an amazing win. And Gilly, the little train that could. I mean, I, he won every one of his matches. I, I, I mean, it was the guy just great competitor. Gordo was younger, you know, yeah. and – uh, and, a, and a very good player. Um, and Harity, Harity, the rising. He's been the youngest, wasn't he? The youngest. The time, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and rising star. And um, that was a fun group. Um, and they were they were very together. Um, and that was fun to watch. It was, you know, fun to sort of make sure their towels were dry and they had, you know, fresh ice in their water because that was about <laughs> the extent of my contribution. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it must have been uh, amazing to – you must have had a bit more input than that, though. I mean, for them to finish sixth, uh, uh, to go that far in that big of an event, um, what do you recall about sort of, sort of when, when you realized that, you know, the guys were actually competing for fifth, sixth, fourth, fifth, or sixth? I mean, that, that's Always huge. the same. You can't look at the scoreboard. Yeah, it's about the brass tacks of that moment. The guy's a lefty. Let's make sure that we're hitting more backhand cross courts. It's the nuts and bolts. You know, you can't. It you make sure that they're healthy. Make sure they're fed. They're getting enough rest. Make sure they're hydrated. Get make sure we get the practice courts when we want them. That kind of stuff, and then all of the other stuff, and then when the dust settles, then you say, "Oh wow, that was pretty cool." 
And um, let, yeah, let <laughs> because them take if you care of business, put them in the yeah, right spots, you, right? Exactly. Because if you focus on that, you're going to fail. You know, when I when I when I go to speak to a company, and I'll invariably be at a retreat, and the CEO will get up and talk about, well, this is what our third quarter earnings were. These were our fourth quarter earnings. This is our goal for our first quarter coming up. And then I get up and I say, well, I, I don't really believe in that. I think if you take care of your people, those things will take care of themselves. And that's truly what I believe. And so it was interesting at that event, because you had such a wealth of knowledge with Julian in his quiet leadership way and Gordo, real, and then, you know, Gilly just leading by example. I didn't do a lot of coaching at that event. They were sort of, and I was just sort of on the periphery. And then, of course, in my typical way, taking all the credit for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. Now, I wanted to get your thoughts just briefly on, on the women as well. I mean, obviously, right now, it's absolutely amazing what we're seeing in every tournament. Uh, there's typically one U.S. woman in the semi or definitely maybe even two or three in the quarters. You've got Olivia, the two Olivias, uh, Blatchford and Olivia Klein and Fector. You've got Sabrina and Amanda Sobey. And uh, then you've got others coming through. Marina's uh, coming up. Marina's really good. Yeah, yeah. That girl definitely. is tough. Yeah, but the women's game, uh, I mean, uh, if you're yeah. following it, I'm sure you are. It's just fantastic. Uh, yeah, to, oh, it's uh, amazing. And I'm so talk happy. About, talk about the evolution, the growth of, of women's squash in the U.S. I mean, it's just, uh, it's in a place that, uh, did you ever think you'd see this? No, no. You know, at the World Juniors, when... When the World Juniors were hosted in Boston, um, our team, we those young girls were good. Mm. And, you know, if they stayed on track and stayed the course, there was no reason to believe they couldn't be successful at the higher levels. We just didn't know, you know, what, what we were going to get there. You've got, first of all, you've got to give the Sobies a lot of credit. That's half the team, mm. right? And so you've got those two. And then you've got Olivia Klein, who I just have so much respect for because she loves the game and yeah. she loves playing for the United States. And she's not always the one getting the most press. And she gets up every day uh, like a real professional and she does her work. Mm. And, uh, and Olivia Victor, I, you know, I always thought that she could be very special, but I was concerned that her body wouldn't hold up. And so there was a lot of debate back and forth as to whether or not she should turn pro. And I was involved in those discussions, but she has stayed healthy mm. and she's put together around her a tremendous team, Danny Massaro. And, you know, I mean, she's got the best along with that center and Bang He. And I think she's up to seven in the world now or eight in the world. I mean, that's that's pretty cool stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. The the US women, it's an it's it's inspiring to see it. And they're they're really competitive in, in yeah. every uh top level event these days. Yep. Um just wanted to get your thoughts on the pro game, uh, Paul, if you don't mind. How much uh, PSA squash do you take in? And uh, sort of what what's your what's your take on the overall uh, the quality uh, of the PSA game at this point? Well, I watch all the tournaments because I'm still connected to the players. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm constantly emailing them and saying congratulations or tough one or whatever. And of course, Squash TV is doing such a good job in oh, yeah. helping us stay stay on top of that. And um, so, you know, it's uh, I feel like our game continues to grow. I think the standard is amazing. I think we still need to, I talk to John Nimick about this all the time. We need to continue to come up with ways to make our sport ever more spectator friendly, viewer friendly. It's too good of a game to be hidden in the dark recesses. And, um, and it's also a sport where I think the average person or the casual player can't really ex- respect or uh, comprehend what's really going on in there. You know, I'm coaching here some of the best juniors around. And then I'll turn on squash TV and it's like, oh, my God, I'm coaching a different sport. <laughs> you know, all <laughs> yeah. of a sudden those cross courts are getting there a lot quicker. And all of a sudden that straight drop is soft and it's making the man move to the front. And, you know look look what look at what Asal can do with his racket. Oh man. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And um, you know, and it's nice the other cool thing that's happening on the pro ranks now is we're seeing some recent touring pros coaching. Yes. I actually really texted I messaged Gautier yesterday. He said, well, man, that's really cool to see. And you know, Rodney, Rodney Martin is back in, in rare form and around these players. And that's that's great too, that they're they're giving back to the game. Um, these guys are so competitive too. They're still extremely uh oh, yeah. competitive and it, it rubs off on their players, obviously. Sure, <laughs> yeah. You don't lose that, you don't lose that fire. Yeah. No, I, lo- I love the the exchanges in the last event between uh, Sherbini, Sherbini and Galtier. I mean, you could just yeah. see the Galtier was – I don't know what he was telling her, but he had his hands out. Like he that. was all over her. He was all over it. And she played – she, Oh, she was so light well. out. I was yeah. talking to Amanda before the semi, and, and then when I watched the final, I messaged Amanda, and I said, I don't – I had no idea that was going to go that way. And she said, neither did I. But I will tell you, when I look at all of the greats out there today, I think Sherbini is a different different animal. And the reason I think that is her ability to make in-game adjustments is unmatched. I've seen her go out there dragging her leg behind her, you know, injured in and she, somehow, has, she had a broken finger there. Yeah. <laughs> somehow finding a way to be competitive, you can't win if you're not first competitive. And then when you're competitive, well, then maybe your opponent starts to feel the pressure. That woman, I I can't say enough things about her. You know, it's you know, you watch Paul or you re- watch Joel, and they're gonna go out there and they're gonna punish you and they're gonna give you what they have, but Shabini is just a different creature, and I really I have such respect, and I encourage all of our players to watch her because mm-hmm. it's never straightforward. She's going to go in and play her shots and try to you know try to impose herself on her her opponents, but she's constantly changing to the situation, and that's that's champion stuff. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the way she she adapted her play 
to play uh, Gohar, who is just a, I'm, she's one of my favorite yeah. players to watch. I just, yeah. just Amazing. exciting. Uh, every, every match is yeah. <laughs> exciting. You know, and I love our four women, and, and yeah. but, but you know, to beat Sherbini, you've got to beat her physically, but you've got to beat her mentally. Yeah. And strategically, because she's going to be making things hard on you all the time. Yeah, she's so smart. Uh, she knows how to adapt uh, really well. Just in terms of, I mean, in terms of the men, I mean, obviously uh, you must have been so uh, impressed and, and maybe even happy to see uh, Ali uh, come back the way he did and win the British Open. Um, I mean, he, like six months ago, it didn't really look yeah. good for him. And then I could just see it slowly but surely. The last few events, he looked stronger and stronger. Yeah, yeah. And I had a funny feeling. I didn't pick him to win the British. I thought, <laughs> yeah. but I thought he would do well. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and yeah. He, he moves differently than everyone. He moves so differently. And, you know, He's let's remember, this is a game that's based on the retrieval of a dead ball. And that guy's ability to cover and and put you under pressure and take your space away and take away your time, it's really pretty remarkable. Yeah, he, he, he has the ability to read the game like unlike anyone I've ever seen. Like, he yeah. knows... Yeah. He knows where every shot, where, where the ball's going to go. It's very rare that, you know, you see him uh, not know where, where a ball's going. Again, hats off to Mike Way. How many people can say that they've coached a person that was number, number one in the world twice? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Two different people. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Well, Paul, you've been uh, tremendous with your time. And b before you go and you told this story, uh, on, I think on the first podcast four years ago. So people who probably haven't heard that one, I'd, I'd love you to tell it again. Uh, you you had the opportunity to speak to uh, the New York Patriots, uh, New England Patriots. Sorry. Yeah. Back yeah. In the day, uh, uh, with uh, the legendary coach himself, Bill Belichick, I guess. Oh, he's he's the smartest but, man in the room. If yeah. you uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, sort of retelling that story for us uh, before we. Uh, well, I was coaching it. tennis and I get a phone call, as I often do, talk about the imposter syndrome. And it was, Coach, this is Bill Belichick. I said, oh, hi, Coach. And he said, how would you like to come up and speak to the Patriots? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. That's Is this a practical joke? And he said, no, no. You know, Trinity typically is, is you know, going into competition, generally speaking, favored. And we have four football games left, and we're likely to be favored in all four. And how, how do you prevent the boys from getting caught in what they call a trap game? where you get caught because you underestimate your opponent. So um, I said, great. So I get in my little car and I drive up to Gillette Stadium and it was empty. And there's nothing cooler than walking onto a field like that when it's empty. And I go down to the amphitheater and 88 men yeah. walk into the room. Each one blocks out the sunlight. Yeah. And, you know, they're just immense people and young and... And I'm like, oh, boy. And I had to speak for 90 minutes. And um, it was super fun. And I just talked to them about, you know, Washington Redskins have circled this game on their calendar. You're going to D.C. this weekend, and they can't wait to play against you. And you've got to match their energy and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Being just the amazing speaker that I am. The Patriots were losing 28 nothing at the half. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, did my magic. 
they did come back to win the game, but it was it was super fun getting a chance to talk to the Patriots. Yeah, Bill Belichick is amazing. I love I love his interviews uh, after football. I mean, he's he gives just, you nothing. He gives, gives you nothing. absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah, we're but on that man is he. Uh, I'm 70 years old. I think he's the greatest football coach in history, mm. and um, he is brilliant. He's really brilliant, and um, he's actually very funny and very fun to be around, but he's not giving the press anything. You can be sure of that. <laughs> really appreciate your time today. My pleasure and my yeah. honor. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot. Have a, have a great day, Jerry. Well, the third time with Paul uh, was definitely a charm. Paul Asiante really uh, appreciate his time and want to wish him all the best going forward. As he said, he's not in full retirement, but he'll be uh, – He'll be stepping down as head coach of the Trinity Bantams after 30 absolutely incredible seasons. So all the best to Paul uh, with what he has going on with Trinity Athletics going forward. And all the best to Trinity. Uh, They had a tremendous end to the season. A lot of people uh, wouldn't have uh, predicted that they would have finished in the final of the Parter Cup, let alone also winning uh, the individuals with Mohamed uh, Sharaf winning the individual event there as well. So much gold there in that pod. And again, what an incredible 30 years with Trinity uh, capping it off with the Potter Cup final finish. Now, coming up uh, on the podcast, uh, a full-on Canadian content, recent Canadian Squash Hall of Fame inductee, Jamie Crombie will be joining me for, I believe, what will be his third visit to the podcast. Really looking forward to this. And we're going to look back at his first-rate career. And I was around for for a bit of that. Uh, I know Jamie uh, pretty well. And it's going to be really good to to look back at his career. Really well-deserved induction into the Canadian Squash Hall of Fame. Also, uh, we'll hopefully have on David Campion, uh, head coach there for Squash England, and he's busy preparing uh, the team for the European Championships, and obviously uh, several of his players will be playing in the World Championships in Chicago, so he's a busy man, but hopefully we'll run him down very soon. Also, one of my favorites, Rob Dernerman's going to be joining me later this week, and he's going to break down the college squash season, double squash, U.S. squash, and I'm sure much, much more. Whenever he comes on, it's always a real treat. Uh, so Rob Dinnerman later this week. And then with any luck, uh, hopefully, uh, we're going to be having Johnny Williams on to break down with me the upcoming World Championships, uh, which will take place in May in Chicago. That's just around the corner, only a few weeks ago, away. And uh, wow, what, uh, what a World Championships that's going to be, both the men and the women. Lots of intrigue there. Uh, so looking forward to having Johnny on and talking about uh, how he sees that playing out as well as how I see it all playing out. I wasn't too far off uh, with the British. I mean, I I picked Paul Cole and uh, Noran Gohar to win it, uh, but I did... Uh, did say, and I believe on a couple of podcasts that I felt Ali was going to make a real run for it, and he most certainly did, did uh, winning it. And uh, Norelle Sherbini, uh, you just can never bet against her. And she stepped her game up. And I think as Paul uh, Asiante says, she is able to adapt 
to circumstances, uh, situations, to players, uh, regardless of you know how she might be feeling physically, she always steps up, and she did that once again in the British. I mean, her playing with that broken finger, then maybe I think she twisted her ankle or hurt her Achilles. I'm not really sure exactly how that played out, but as soon as that happened, she came back on the court and started playing better than she had been playing previously. So uh, she's uh, always going to be a threat to win. And uh, if she's healthy heading into Chicago, I guess you'd have to say that she she's the, the favorite to win it. Uh, but with the women's game, you never really know. I mean, it's so tight up there at the top. And then there are several others uh, looking to make inroads, including uh, Amanda Sobey, Joelle King, who, who played well at the British, uh, and, and others uh, nipping at their heels as well. But definitely the big three, Hamami, Gohar, Sherbini, they're the favorites uh, on the women's side. But uh, Johnny Williams and I will be breaking all of that down uh, in a week or, or so, uh, a week or so before the event. So really looking forward to having him on. Everybody, thanks so much for listening. Please share these uh, these uh, podcasts uh, with your friends and with your squash community. Give it a like, give it a tweet, review it for me if you don't mind. Also, there's a PayPal link if you uh, want to uh, uh, drop a few coins in the hat. There's a PayPal link on the SoundCloud page uh, so you can uh, contribute to keeping the podcast alive via that that PayPal link. Uh, All the best with your squash, and we'll be talking to you very soon with... Um, who did I say is coming up again? Uh, yes, Jamie Crombie, the recent uh, Canadian Squash Hall of Fame inductee. He'll be joining me in a few days, and that should be a lot of fun. Take care, and all the best. Goodbye now. <laughs>